Last week, Jesus does something very, or to put it a different way, he uses their question as an opportunity to teach them about two events. The Bible does this a lot, actually. It, it often smashes two events or people or stories together. And the reader is meant to compare the two. And the one is supposed to illustrate or help the reader understand the other. And in this case, the disciples are meant to learn about the parallels between these two events. The coming soon destruction of the temple and the later return of Jesus. Those are the two events that Jesus is telling them about in Mark chapter 13. There are patterns or similarities that will be repeated between the two events. And so we're supposed to learn about the second event by knowing something about the first one. Well, last week we talked about the destruction of the temple and how it was indeed destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70, just as Jesus had declared. The historians of the day used apocalyptic language to describe the destruction, menacing armies marching in from the sky, supernatural voices declaring a destruction beyond anything that the world had ever seen. It was the end of the world as they knew it, and no one felt fine. We'll pick up the story in Mark chapter 13 at verse 24. And as I read through the rest of the chapter, beginning at verse 24, I'll highlight for you three things, three things that we should learn from this passage this morning. Verse 24, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. We'll pause right there because you should know that those days, the phrase that Jesus uses there, is a phrase frequently used in the Old Testament prophets to describe a time of judgment on a grand scale. So the Old Testament prophets, when they wanted to talk about this earth-shaking kind of judgment, they would uh, frequently use the phrase, those days. Also, the imagery of the sun being darkened was something that the Old Testament prophets spoke of several times. And because the disciples were familiar with the Old Testament prophets, Jesus' words here would not have sounded as strange and unfamiliar to them as they might sound to us. They would have instantly recognized that by speaking in this way, Jesus was entering into the ancient prophetic tradition of the Old Testament. And Jesus wanted them to understand his words from the perspective of judgment and exile that leads to restoration and rebuilding that all the prophets in the Old Testament spoke about. Then in verse 26. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. And at this point, the disciples would have gotten a little bit excited about what Jesus says here in verses 26 and 7. See, across the ancient Near East, all of the cultures of this this era or area for centuries beforehand, clouds were understood to be where the gods lived. And if you wanted to access the gods, you had to somehow get up into the clouds. There's an example of this. The ancient Greek writer Aristophanes wrote a play about a guy named Trigius who flew on a giant dung beetle up into the clouds to ask the gods why they were letting the Peloponnesian War last so long. 
The whole thing's a comedy, so it's meant to be as funny as it sounds. But when he got there, he discovered that all the gods except one had gone on vacation. They had all left. They had all grown bored of watching humanity, and so they left. And the one god that they left behind to run things while they were all on vacation was Hermes, the god of war. And so that's why the war had dragged on. And, he, and then he thought, oh, okay, I understand now. And then he left. But the punchline of this whole play is actually that the gods don't really care about people. They might tune in from time to time to amuse themselves, but mostly they're checked out, they're absent, they couldn't care less. So it didn't really matter if you prayed or offered sacrifices or whatever, because they didn't really care about you anyway. That was the punchline of the play. And that was the realization, if you read the literature of the ancient Near East, that was the realization of many people in many places over many centuries when it came to the idea of the gods in the clouds. The Jewish tradition also associated clouds with God. In the exodus from Egypt, for example, God was in the clouds, right? But notice the contrast. Notice the contrast with Aristophanes. Instead of a a distant God in the clouds who didn't care, the cloud of the God of Israel lived with them. He traveled with them. It led them from place to place. It even sustained their entire nation in the desert. And some of the Old Testament prophets talk about the clouds as well. And this phrase, son of man, that Jesus is using here in verse 26, you have to notice that phrase, son of man. It's from the the prophet Daniel, and Jesus is intentionally borrowing this title for himself from the book of the Old Testament prophet Daniel. It's Jesus' thing that he called himself most frequently was the son of man, and he borrows it from the Old Testament prophet Daniel. And as he speaks from the Old Testament prophetic tradition here in Mark 13, think about what he's telling his disciples. And this is the first thing that we should absolutely learn from this passage. We have to learn this. Please remember this all the days of your life. In verse 26 and 7, Jesus is telling his disciples this. The God of the clouds does not stay in the clouds. The God of the clouds does not stay in the clouds. Listen. According to verse 26 and 7, Jesus is not a distant and uncaring God in the clouds, checked out and on vacation. Jesus is promising here that he will come and intervene and save by his power and glory. He is going to make all things right. He is going to fix what is broken. He is going to judge the world by evaluating everyone's work. And what is good, he will declare good. And what is evil, he will declare evil. And he will go to the ends of the earth, in verse 27. The four winds, north, south, east, and west. He will go to the ends of the earth to save his people. And he will not leave even one of his elect behind. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 26 and 7. The disciples would not have missed it. They would have noticed it immediately. In the midst of the scary predictions that Jesus makes earlier in this chapter, how much of a comfort must this have been to the disciples? Even in the midst of the temple and Jerusalem and the entire nation's collapse, the Son of Man was going to come with power and save. And it should be an incredible comfort to us as well. Jesus, our Savior, the one in whom we believe, the one in whom we trust, the one who has called you to follow him all the days of your life. This Jesus is not indifferent. 
He's not going to stay up there in the clouds while you slog through your life. He is not going to forget you or grow tired of you or grow bored with you. He is the God who intervenes, who saves his people, every last one from the four winds. He will go to the ends of heaven and earth, he says. In verse 27, he will go to the ends of heaven and earth to save you. Remind that. Remind yourself of that when you're hurt, when you're depressed, when you're ill, when you're angry, or when you're just plain tired. Remind yourself, say to yourself, the God of the clouds does not stay in the clouds. That's the first thing that we should know. Let's continue reading at verse 28. From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near. He's at the gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So two chapters earlier in Mark chapter 11, Jesus used the fig tree to teach the disciples. In that case, the image was a fig tree that had leaves, but no fruit. It looked healthy and strong, but it was literally fruitless. Jesus cursed the tree, and it withered so that its outward appearance matched its inward reality, its inward barrenness. In the context of Mark 11, Jesus was using the fig tree to teach the disciples about the temple. Because the temple was figuratively fruitless, he was going to curse it, and it was going to wither so that its outward appearance would match its inward lifelessness. And here in Mark 13, Jesus uses the image of the fig tree again. He returns to that image, which to the disciples' minds would have recalled what he, the last thing he said about a fig tree. Right? which would have reminded them again of the temple. Watch for the leaves, he says. Jesus says, watch for the leaves. You know that summer is coming soon when you see, peeking out of the branches, those tiny little buds that grow into leaves. And in the same way, this disciple's very generation, he says in verse 30, would see the leaves budding when the Son of Man comes. The coming of the Son of Man is ominous and dangerous. After all, it meant the destruction of the temple and the end of the world as they knew it. But in the book of Daniel, which is where Jesus' title, the Son of Man, comes from, the final outcome of the Son of Man's coming, which is exactly what Jesus is talking about here, the exact thing that he is making the disciples think of by using the phrase Son of Man, they would have heard the echo to Daniel, the final of, outcome of the, the Son of Man's coming in the book of Daniel is this. From chapter 7 it says, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, a kingdom that will not be destroyed. 
and by identifying himself as the Son of Man from Daniel's prophecy, Jesus is telling the disciples that everything that he is doing right then, in that moment in Mark chapter 13, everything he was doing was designed to build the beautiful, eternal kingdom of God that Daniel described. And that brings us to the second thing that you absolutely must learn from this passage. That's this. Jesus is building the kingdom of God around the world, even in the darkest of times. Jesus is building the kingdom of God around the world, even in the darkest of times. Think of it this way. Jesus was even able to use the fall of Jerusalem to build his kingdom. The the very thing that the disciples feared the most was the very first thing that Jesus used to build his kingdom in the nations because that event scattered the eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and work. They traveled to new places and started telling new peoples and nations and languages about Jesus. And the kingdom started to grow and more and more people believed in Jesus and were saved. That started way back then in 70 AD and it's happening even now as we speak. Do you want to hear something surprising? My friend, our own Shelton Woods, who is a historian, researched how many people throughout world history have claimed to be Christians. And I think his findings are surprising. In AD 100, there was one Christian in the world for every 360 non-Christians. AD 100, one out of every 360. In A.D. 1000, there was one Christian for every 270 non-Christians, and so the gospel was spreading. In A.D. 1500, there's one one Christian in the world for every 85 non-Christians. And so in 500 years, the ratio is cut in half. In 1900, 400 years later, there was one Christian for every 21 non-Christians in the world cut into a quarter of what it was. Between 1900 and 1970, it went from 1 out of 21, 1971 Christian for every 13 non-Christians in the world. And do you know what the number is for today? Today, there is one Christian for every three non-Christians in the world. What does that tell us? Let me tell you. Despite the darkness of the world, despite opposition to the gospel in every place that it has ever gone, despite the failure and the inconsistency of the people proclaiming the message of Jesus around the world, despite it all, the kingdom is being built. And the gospel is taking over the world. That's the reality, despite whatever appearances you happen to see on the news or wherever else. The gospel is taking over the world. It happens quietly and subtly, but the gospel is even right now going to every nation just as Jesus commanded. Every tribe and people and language will be represented in the kingdom just as St. John predicted in Revelation chapter 7. And the gates of hell cannot stop the building of the kingdom just as Jesus promised. And do you want to hear something even more surprising than all of that? This is maybe what's most shocking of all. 
He's using you and me to do it. That's shocking, isn't it? I mean, Jesus could say the word, and the stones of the earth would suddenly have voices and would begin praising him. That's what he said in Luke 19. He doesn't really need you and me to tell people who he is and what he has done because he can raise up voices from the stones. But that's, that's how this whole thing is happening. That's how Jesus has chosen to accomplish his kingdom building. The rejected cornerstone, Jesus himself, uses misshapen bricks like you and me to build something greater than the world has ever seen. And that's the second thing that you should know. That is that Jesus is building the kingdom of God around the world, even in the darkest of times. Let's finish reading Mark chapter 13. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake. For you do not know when the time shall come. It is like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, unless he comes suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Three times in those verses he says, stay awake. And that's the third thing that we need to learn from this passage. It's simply stay awake. Maybe sleep is easy for you. I have, in, I have frequent insomnia. It hasn't been as bad lately, but it has been pretty bad at times. I think uh, one time in an eight-day span, I only managed 34 hours of sleep. And your mind begins to do kind of funny things at that point. But even, even I will say this, even, even an insomniac will say this, how easy it is, how easy it is to fall asleep when it comes to the kingdom of God. How easy it is. There are so many things that lull us and distract us. So many things that seem easier to love, easier to think about, easier to talk about, easier to spend time on. There are so many things. What is it that causes you to fall asleep? Think about it for a minute. What is it that distracts you? What is it that lulls you? Is it ambition? Is it pleasure? Is it busyness? Maybe it's this. Sometimes it's easier, sometimes it feels easier to be a mocker or a skeptic than it does to be a believer. Sometimes it feels easier to be a mocker than it does to be a believer. Maybe maybe you think that what Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, these promises, maybe you think all of that is about as believable as Winnie the Pooh trying to fool the bees into thinking that he's a little black rain cloud and not a honey thief. Maybe that makes about as much sense to you. But here's the question that we all face. Let me just tighten it down to this. We all face this one question. You have to answer the question, which is more real? Which is more real? The testimony of your eyes or the promises of God? Which is more real? The testimony of your eyes, what you see what you experience or the promises of God which one is more real Jesus said 
that he's building something here. Jesus said he's building something here that will result in light triumphing over darkness, order over chaos, salvation over sin, life over death. That's what he's promising. The question in front of you is, do you believe that he can do it? Do you believe that he will do it? Do you believe that he's doing it even right now? Even in you? Do you believe that? That's what he promises. Now, which will you believe? The testimony of your eyes? Or the promises of God? I, I, I implore you, don't let the world fool you. Keep your eyes focused on the reality of what God is doing here in this world. He is building the kingdom everywhere, even in us and through us. So stay awake. And let me finish with three brief things, three brief ways in which you should respond to all of this idea of the kingdom of God being at work in us and around us. Three very brief things. The first one is pray for the kingdom. In Jesus' own prayer, he said, your kingdom come. Pray it. In Revelation chapter 22, it says, come quickly, Lord Jesus. When was the last time you prayed that? Pray it. Use the words of the Psalms to guide your prayers. They're they are constantly crying out to God and saying, come and intervene and save. Read the Psalms and pray them and let those be your words as you cry out to God and say, come, Lord, and bring your kingdom here and now. And number two, number one, pray for the kingdom. Number two, look for the kingdom. Listen to the stories of what Jesus is doing around the world. Read a little church history. Hear what he's done in the past. Read about missions. Watch the video series, Dispatches from the Front, that we have down in this, the church library downstairs. Hear about how, God, how the kingdom is spreading with power and glory. Learn about how it is happening right now in places that you would least expect it. And as you look for the kingdom, learn to be optimistic about what God is doing in this world and in your life. Pray for the kingdom. Look for the kingdom. Last thing. Build the kingdom. God has called us to be a part of this. Take up your cross daily and obediently follow him. View all your relationships as opportunities to build the kingdom. Family, friends, baristas, whoever. Start with the obvious relationships and go from there. Practice talking about what God has done in your life and then tell people about it. Invest in missions. And I encourage every one of you to make a plan to go on a missions trip somewhere so that you can see for yourself the kingdom being built where you would least expect it. There are a thousand ways to build the kingdom. And honestly, I don't even really care which one you pick first. But I, my hope is that everyone at All Saints will, will see themselves as kingdom builders, participants in Christ's work to redeem this world. May God bless us at All Saints with wakefulness as we fulfill our calling to be kingdom builders. Amen.